You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Understanding the biological basis of the human mind is the most complex task that any area of science is facing. These are the words of our guest today, Dr. Eric Kandel, recipient of the 2000 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Eric Kandel, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and professor of psychiatry, physiology, and biochemistry at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's the first American psychiatrist ever to win the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and only the second psychiatrist ever to win the Nobel Prize in its 102-year history. Welcome, Dr. Kandel. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Today we are discussing the neurobiology of behavior. Could we begin, Dr. Kandel, by asking you, in a general way, what is this field of the neurobiology of behavior? I think there's a general consensus within the scientific community that the great challenge, not only in biology but in all of science, is to understand uh, the biological basis of mental activity, how we perceive, think, and act. In order to do that, we need to see how different aspects of behavior are represented in different regions of the brain, how they interact together in order to give rise to our perceptions, our thoughts, and our actions. And I understand that there is a controversy about the duality of the brain and the mind. Could you speak to that? No, there's not a controversy. All knowledgeable people agree that all mental processes derive from brain processes, that mind and brain are inseparable. Mind are a series of functions carried out by the brain, very much like walking is a series of functions carried out by the legs, except infinitely more complicated. So I don't think any serious person now believes that there is a fundamental distinction between mental processes and brain processes. And how has research really informed this? Well, I mean, research has informed it going back to the 19th century when people like Broca and Wernicke first showed that lesions in different parts of the brain produce severe defects in behavior. They were focusing in particular on the aphasias, disorders of language. And as you probably know, Broca discovered that if they have a lesion in the frontal lobe on the left side, it gives rise to a difficulty in the articulation of speech without interfering with the perception of speech. If you have a lesion on the same side in the back of the brain, in Wernicke's area, it interferes with the perception of speech, but not with its articulation. How has this paradigm evolved over the decades of your career? Well, I think it's evolved in several ways. One is animal experimentations, particularly experiments in monkeys, and more recently in mice and in snails, have made it possible to localize parallel regions for homologous functions in simple animals and to use those animals to study the underlying mechanisms whereby these neural circuits develop and how they function. But in addition, I think a major, major advance has been the emergence of imaging methodology that allows you to visualize in the brain of an intact behaving person what regions of the brain become involved when a person perceives something, thinks something, does something, acts in a certain way. So that combination of methods has revolutionized our understanding of the brain. Please give us an overview of the main areas of research in your own findings. I've been interested in how memory is stored in the brain, 
uh, how short-term memory is converted to long-term memory, and how long-term memory is perpetuated for the lifetime of an organism. And are there areas in your own life that have really motivated you to pursue such questions? As you know, I've recently written a book about the history of neuroscience in the context of my autobiography, a book called In Search of Memory, The Emergence of New Science of Mind. It struck me in writing this book that I was very much influenced in my thinking about the importance of memory by my own memories that go back to my youth, particularly my memories of being a Jewish kid in Vienna at the time when Hitler came into Austria and feeling not only a deep sense of anti-Semitism but physical persecution, although in my case it was fairly modest compared to what came later, escaping from Vienna and coming to the United States and having a wonderful life here and seeing how different life was here than it had been in the Vienna that I knew and trying to understand what gave rise to this irrational outburst of violence on the parts of Viennese. So there is a motto in post-Holocaust thinking which says, never forget that we should not ever forget the experiences of the Holocaust. And in some ways, my research has been sort of the biological underpinnings of that model. My attempt to understand in biological terms what never forget really involves. So I've been tremendously influenced by my early experiences. My early experience got me interested in intellectual history and trying to understand in historical terms how Nazism arose in in Europe. Uh, And then it got me interested in psychoanalysis, trying to understand the underlying motivation of people's actions. And it was really from psychoanalysis that I moved into the biology of the brain, thinking that we could never really have a good understanding of motivation and action without understanding the brain processes that underlie it. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and my guest today is Dr. Eric Kendall, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and recipient of the 2000 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Yes, Dr. Kendall, and what do we know about the neurobiological basis of mental illness? Embarrassingly little, I would say. I think one of the striking things is that the new biology of mind has made an enormous impact in neurology, and it's greatly enriched our understanding of neurological disease, but it's had relatively little impact so far on psychiatry, although I think that's about to change. Now, one might well ask, you know, why is this so? Why is the impact on neurology so much greater than on psychiatry? And I think if you just think about it for a moment, I mean, any clinician would know that the answer is clear, right? Yes. Neurology as an academic discipline has known for 100 years what the anatomical basis of most neurological diseases are. So we've known that Parkinson's disease involves the substantia nigra, that Huntington's disease involves the caudate nucleus, that amyotrophic lateral sclerosis involves motor neurons. And we could see how different parts of the motor system, when they become diseased, produce very distinctive interference with motor function. Moreover, using those three diseases as an example, but also other diseases, there are a number of neurological diseases that have a straightforward Mendelian genetics. They're due to a single gene, and one can identify the gene, clone the gene, sequence it, 
pop it into a mouse, a fly, a worm, and study how it produces the disease. We can study mechanisms of pathogenesis. And as a result, we can develop very good animal models of these diseases. None of these four attributes hold for psychiatry. We know very little about the anatomical basis of most diseases. The major diseases of psychiatry, depression and schizophrenia, for example, have a significant genetic contribution, which accounts for at least 50% of the variants. But if they're not due to a single gene. They're polygenic diseases through the action of a number of different genes acting together, each producing a small effect. We've identified precious few of these genes. We know very little about how they function. And as a result, we have very few good animal models of mental disorder. And one of the things that my colleagues and I and people all over the country are becoming interested in, those who want to advance psychiatry, is to see to what degree we can use imaging to localize the anatomical substratum of psychiatric disorders, to develop better animal models to study components of mental illness, so we can get insight into that. But we've got a long way to go. And what do neuroimaging studies show about the basis of fairly common disorders like depression or anxiety, the few that exist? Well, I think in anxiety, it's clear that the amygdala, which is a key structure, is critically involved. And you can show in experimental animals, and even in people, that if I were to show you a frightening face, your amygdala would light up. And my colleagues and I did a very interesting study that actually has a psychoanalytic base. We gave an anxiety scale to a group of normal graduate students at Columbia. And if you give a scale like that, some of them are quite relaxed and some of them are, you know, a little bit anxious, even routinely. And then we showed them a subliminal presentation of a frightening face. They did not consciously perceive it, but by autonomic measures heart rate, pupillary size, we could tell that their brain reacted to it. And it lit up a particular part of the amygdala called the lateral nucleus. And the degree of lighting up was directly related to the degree of baseline anxiety. People who were very anxious lit it up a lot. People who are very relaxed, such as yourself, would not light it up barely at all. So that's interesting, first of all, for showing how you can measure really almost quantitatively anxiety in a structure like the amygdala. And two, it provides a biological marker for evaluating the outcome of psychotherapy. One in principle, you know, should be able to show that if those normal people who show this tendency for anxiety undergo cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, or whatever, will it change their behavior, and if so, will that be paralleled by a disappearance of this abnormality? That would be quite nice. Yes. Have there been such studies done so far? Yes. There are a number of classic studies based on obsessive-compulsive neurosis, uh, which presents with an abnormality in the caudate nucleus, which is involved in repetitive behavior. That abnormality disappears in those patients and only in those patients that respond successfully to either pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy. That's a powerful demonstration. Very powerful. And that makes me hopeful that one might be able to put psychotherapy on a sort of scientific basis. Are there differences that you would expect between different forms of psychotherapeutic treatments from a neuroscientific perspective? I don't know whether from a neuroscientific perspective one would necessarily expect it. I think from an intuitive perspective one would expect it. I think different forms of therapy in some ways try to accomplish different things. Interpersonal therapy is 
really more designed for the here and now, an acute crisis, a loss of a love object, a loss of a job, immediate crises in one's life, while cognitive behavioral therapy is more designed for long-term abnormalities in cognitive style. You know, kind of loser mentality that many people who are depressed have. So it's more designed for long-term changes. And of course, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which is also becoming being standardized, is designed to give you deeper insight into your lifestyle. So I think it would be very, very interesting to see what patients respond most effectively and what disorders respond most effectively. I want to thank Dr. Eric Kandel for being our guest today. We've been discussing the neurobiology of behavior. I'm Dr. Laura Humphrey, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.